Chapter Twenty Six of the Chestermark Instinct. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Chestermark Instinct by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter Twenty Six: The Lightning Flash. At half past seven that evening, Starmidge and Easleby stepped out of a London express at Ecclesborough, and walked out to the front of the station to get a taxicab for Scarnham. The newsboys were rushing across the station square with the latest editions of the evening papers, and Starmidge's quick ear caught the meaning of the unfamiliar North Country shoutings. "'Latest about the Scarnham mystery,' he said, stopping a lad and taking a couple of papers from him. "'Something about the adjourned inquest. Of course, that would be to-day. Now then, what's this?' He drew aside to a quiet corner of the station portico, and with his companion looking over his shoulder, read aloud a passage from the latest of the two papers. An important witness gave evidence this afternoon at the adjourned inquest held at Scarnham on the body of Mr. Frederick Hollis, solicitor of London, who was recently found lying dead at the bottom of one of the old lead mines in Ellersdeane Hollow. It will be remembered that the circumstance of this discovery, already familiar to our readers, allied with the mysterious disappearance of Mr. John Horbury and the presumed theft of the Countess of Ellersdeane's jewels, seemed to indicate an extraordinary crime, and opinion varies considerably in the Scarnham district as to whether Mr. Hollis, the reason of whose visit to Scarnham is still unexplained, fell into the old mine by accident, or whether he was thrown in. At the beginning of the proceedings this afternoon, a shepherd named James Livesey of Ellersdeane, employed by Mr. Marchant, farmer of the same place, was immediately called. He stated in answer to questions put by the coroner that, on Monday morning last, he had gone with his employer to an out-of-the-way part of Northumberland to buy new stock, and in consequence of his absence from home, had not heard of the Scarnham affair until his return this morning, when, on Mr. Marchant's advice, he had at once called on the coroner's office to volunteer information. Livesey's evidence, in brief, was as follows. At nine o'clock last Saturday evening, he was walking home from Scarnham to Ellersdeane, by a track which crosses the hollow, and cuts into the high road between the town and the village at a point near the Warren, an isolated house which is the private residence of Mr. Gabriel Chestermark, banker, of Scarnham. As he reached this point, he saw Mr. John Horbury, whom he knew very well by sight, accompanied by a stranger, come out of the hollow by another path, cross the high road, and walk down the lane which leads to the Warren. They were talking very earnestly, but Mr. Horbury saw him and said good night in answer to his own greeting. There was a strong moonlight at the time, and he saw the stranger's face clearly. He was quite sure that the stranger was the dead man whose body had just been shown to him at the mortuary. Questioned further, Livesey positively adhered to all his statements. He was certain of the time, certain of the identity of the two gentlemen. He knew Mr. Horbury very well indeed, and had known him for many years. Mr. Horbury had often talked to him when they met in the fields and lanes of the neighborhood. He had no doubt at all that the dead man he had seen in the mortuary was the gentleman who was with Mr. Horbury on Saturday night. He had noticed him particularly as the two gentlemen passed him, and had wondered who he was. The moon was very bright that night. He saw Mr. Hollis quite plainly. He would have known him again at any time. He was positive that the two gentlemen entered the lane which led to Mr. Gabriel Chestermark's house. They were evidently making a direct line for it when he first saw them, and they crossed the high road straight to its entrance. The lane led nowhere else than to the warren. 
It was locally called the lane, but it was really a sort of carriage drive to Mr. Chestermarke's front door, and there was a gate at the high-road entrance to it. He saw Mr. Horbury and his companion enter that gate. He heard it clash behind them. Questioned by Mr. Polk, superintendent of police at Scarnham, Livesey said that when he first saw the two gentlemen they were coming from the direction of Ellersdeen Tower. There was a path right across the hollow, from a point in front of the warren, to the tower, and thence to the woods on the Scarnham side. That was the path the two gentlemen were on. He was absolutely certain about the time for two reasons. Just before he saw Mr. Horbury and his companion, he heard the clock at Scarnham Parish Church strike nine, and after they had passed him, he had gone on to the Green Archer public house, and had noticed that it was ten minutes past nine when he entered. Further questioned, he said he saw no one else on the hollow but the two gentlemen. At the conclusion of Livesey's evidence, the coroner announced to the jury that, having had the gist of the witness's testimony communicated to him earlier in the day, he had sent his officer to request Mr. Gabriel Chestermarke's attendance. The officer, however, had returned to say that Mr. Chestermarke was away on business, and that it was not known when he would be back at the bank. As it was highly important that the jury should know at once if Mr. Horbury and Mr. Hollis called at the Warren on Saturday evening last, he, the coroner, had sent for Mr. Chestermarke's butler, who would doubtless be able to give information on that point. They would adjourn for an hour until the witness attended. "'That's the end of it, in that paper,' remarked Starmidge. "'Let's see if the other has any later news. Ah, here we are. There is more in the stop-the-press space of this one. Now then.' He held the second newspaper half in front of him, half in front of Ellersby, and again rapidly read over the report. Scarnham, further adjournment. On the coroner's inquiry being resumed at four o'clock, Thomas Beavers, butler to Mr. Chestermarke at the Warren, said that so far as he knew, Mr. Horbury did not call on his master on Saturday evening last, nor did any gentleman call who answered the description of Mr. Hollis. It was impossible for anybody to call at the Warren in the ordinary way without his, the butler's knowledge. As a matter of fact, the witness continued, Mr. Chestermarke was not at home during the greater part of that evening. Mr. Joseph Chestermarke had dined at the Warren at seven o'clock, and at half-past eight he and his uncle left the house together. Mr. Chestermarke did not return until eleven. Asked by Mr. Polk, superintendent of the police, if he knew in which direction Mr. Gabriel and Mr. Joseph Chestermarke proceeded when they went away, the witness said that a short time after they left the house, he, in drawing the curtains of the dining-room, saw them walking on a side-path of the garden, apparently in close conversation. He saw neither of them until Mr. Gabriel Chestermarke returned home, alone, at the time he had mentioned. Later. The inquest was further adjourned at the close of this afternoon's proceedings. Before adjourning, the coroner informed the jury that he understood there were rumors in the town to the effect that Mr. Hollis had been strangled before being thrown into the old lead-mine. He need hardly say that there was not the slightest grounds for those rumors. But the medical men had some suspicion that the unfortunate gentleman might have been poisoned, and he, the coroner, thought it well to tell them that a specialist was being sent down by the home office, who, with the Scarnham doctors, would perform an autopsy on his arrival. The result would be placed before the jury when these proceedings were resumed. Starmidge dropped the paper and looked at Easelby with an expression of astonishment. Poison, he exclaimed. That's a new idea. Poisoned first, and thrown into that old mine after? That's... But, there, what's the good of theorizing? Pick out the best of those cars. Let's get to Scarnham as quickly as possible. Something's got to be done tonight. Easelby made no immediate answer, 
But presently, when they were in a fast motor and leaving the Ecclesborough streets behind them, he shook his head and spoke more gravely than was usual with him. "'The big question, my lad,' he said, "'is what to do, and there's another, "'what's been done, and possibly what's being done. "'It's my impression something's being done now, still going on.' "'I know one thing,' exclaimed Starmidge determinedly. "'We'll confront Gabriel Chestermarke tonight with what we know. "'That's positive.' "'If we can find him,' said Easleby, "'you don't know. "'The coming down to Ecclesborough may have been all a blind. "'You can reach a lot of places from Ecclesborough, "'and you can leave a train at more than one place "'between Ecclesborough and London.' "'I telephoned Polk to keep an eye on him anyway, "'if he did arrive at either Scarnham or the Warren,' "'answered Starmidge, still grimly determined. "'And it's my impression that he has come down, "'to see that nephew of his. "'Easleby, they're both in at it. "'Both.' Again the elder detective made no answer. He was obviously much impressed by the recent developments as related in the newspapers which they had just read, and was deep in thought about them and the possibilities which they suggested to him. "'Well,' he said at last, as the high roofs of Scarnham came into view, "'we'll hear what Polk has to tell. Something may have happened since those inquest proceedings this afternoon.' But Polk, when they reached his office, had little to tell." Lord Ellersdeane, Betty Fosdyke, and Stephen Hollis were with him, evidently in consultation, and Starmidge at once saw that Betty looked distressed and anxious in no ordinary degree. All turned eagerly on the two detectives, but Starmidge addressed himself straight to Polk with one direct inquiry. "'Seen him? Heard of him?' he asked. "'Not a word,' answered Polk. "'Nor a sign. If he came down by that train you spoke of, he ought to have been in the town by four o'clock at the outside.' but he's never been to the bank, and he certainly hadn't arrived at his house three-quarters of an hour ago. And since ten o'clock this morning, Tother's disappeared, too. "'What, Joseph?' exclaimed Starmidge. "'Just so,' replied Polk, with the expression of a man who feels that things are getting far too much for individual effort. "'He was in the bank at eight o'clock this morning. One of my men saw him go in by the back way, orchard way, you know. The clerk says he went out, that way again, at ten and he's never been seen since. "'His house,' said Starmidge. "'Have you tried that?' "'Know nothing of him there. The old man and old woman say so, at any rate,' answered Polk. "'He seems to have cleared out. And now here's fresher bother, though I don't know if it's anything to do with this. Mr. Neal's missing. Never been seen since six yesterday evening. Miss Fosdyke's anxious.' "'He was to see me at nine last night,' said Betty. "'No one has seen him.' His landlady says he never returned home last night. Do you think anything can have happened? If anything's happened to Mr. Neal, interrupted Starmidge, it's all a piece with the rest of it. Now, superintendent, he went on, turning to Polk, never mind what news I've brought. We've got to find these two Chestermarks at once. We must go, some of us, to the Warren, some to Corn Market. See here, Easleby and I will go on to the Corn Market now. You get some of your men and follow. If we hear nothing there, then the warn. But quick! The two detectives hurried out of the police station. Lord Ellerstein and Betty, after a word or two with Polk, followed. Outside, Starmidge and Easleby paused a moment, consulting. The Earl stepped forward to speak to them. As regards Mr. Neal, he began, Miss Fosdyke thinks you ought to know that a sudden searching flash, as of lightning, glared across the open space in front 
lighting up the tower of the old church, the high roofs of the ancient houses, and the drifting clouds above them. Then a crash, as of terrible thunder, shook the little town from end to end, and as it died away the street lamps went out, and the tinkle of falling glass sounded on the pavements of the marketplace. And in the second of dead silence which followed, a woman's voice, shrill, terrified, shrieking loudly, once, somewhere in the darkness. End of chapter 26